Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, I'm doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although they'll also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Welcome back to The Contrarians, or We're Right and You're Wrong. My name is Alex. Episode number 50. For episode number 50, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Julio. Julio, we have reached... A milestone. A, a, a quarter of a century. Or, excuse me, no. half of a century. <laughs> half a century. <laughs> what do you think centuries are, Alex? <laughs> Apparently 200. <laughs> 200 years. Uh, yes, it is. it is a big deal. I mean, technically, we've done more than 50 episodes because we've done the bonus oh, episodes we've done, yeah. here and there. So we're probably closer to 60, if not more. But mm-hmm. official Contrarians timeline, entirely focused on Grand Tomato scores kind mm-hmm. of episodes, 50. Yes. And for episode number 50, we're going back to our gray area episode um, gimmick motif, as it were. Uh, we've done Natural Born Killers. What was 20? Scream 4? Yeah, number 10 was Natural Born Killers, number 20 was Scream 4, number 30 was The A-Team, right? Yes. And then number 40 was, of course, this is 40, Mm -hmm. and now, here, finally. Yes, you're bringing to the table, we got to do my pick with The A-Team with number 30, so for number 50, Julio, what are you bringing to the table? I am bringing Cloud Atlas, which I brought to the table two years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And then you've kept it on the table for two years (laughs) unwatched. Yes, you did lend it to me and uh, finally got around to watching it today. Uh, We're recording Saturday. It's December 2nd. Uh, We had to pick a Saturday just due to the length of this beast. Yeah, it's it's quite an epic. And now, uh, for those of you that for some reason are starting with episode 50 and are not familiar with what we do on Gray Area episodes... Uh, this is where we actually disagree on mm-hmm. something. Uh, so we take turns uh, for episodes 10, 20, 30, 40, and now 50. We pick the movie that is not really high or really low on Rotten Tomatoes. Instead, it's just right down the middle. Mm-hmm. And just the way that it split the critics uh, in the tomato meter, it's supposed to split us, the contrarians. So we'll each take an opposing view. 
And for example, Natural Born Killers, I defended it, and you oh yeah criticized it, and then we swapped for Scream. Oh, Scream, we had Eddie, so mm-hmm. he the voice of wrong. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how he. I know I was in the middle because I it was my first time seeing it, and you guys were opposing. But I remember who picked what, which position. I think he actually was uh, uh, positive, and he right. was having and, a joy just being sarcastic as could right. Be. And then he just swapped uh, when we did the real talk uh, for episode thirty, the A team. I was negative, and Alex was positive. Uh, for this is forty, I defended that movie, and uh, Alex Alex just said what he really mm-hmm. felt <laughs> in both parts of the show. And for this one uh, movie, this was your third viewing. This was my first, and I came away refreshed. I will be pitching the posse here for a Yeah, Atlas. whereas I came out of it just disenchanted. <laughs> Third time was not the charm for Cloud Atlas in my case. So uh, that's that's how this first part, that's how uh, Contrarian's Corner is going to work out. And then, of course, as usual, during Real Talk, we'll tell you how we really feel about the movie. Exactly. Um, now, standing at 66% on Rotten Tomatoes, Cloud Atlas has garnered... Um, I would. I don't know what type of following or fanfare you could say about it. It is based off of a book. Um, let me see here. The book is called Cloud Atlas. Based off Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, uh, directed by the Wachowskis and Tom Tyker. Uh, Tyker? T-Y-K-W-E-R. Tyker? Tyker. Uh, but, yeah. So, at 66%, this movie kind of came and went for its big budget and all of its... Uh, Loaded cast. It's a bit of an interesting tale that we'll get into in a moment how we're going to break this down. It's, it's impossible for the, for this movie to just come and go. Yeah. <laughs> this movie comes and it just stays for a good while and then goes. And uh, yes, at two hours and 52 minutes, it is the longest movie we've tackled here on The Contrarians. Now, the movie itself is made up of six uh, not plot-wise intertwined stories, but thematically they're intertwined. Yeah, they uh, they're really... They really stretch uh, believability to kind of connect them beyond Mm -hmm. themes. And, uh, well, we'll talk about that. Yes. But uh, before that, I mean, of course, a lot of people have a lot of opinions. It's at 66% Run Tomatoes. Uh, So like we do on the Gray Area episodes, we're actually going to alternate quotes, uh, positive and negative. Uh, Starting with David Thompson from The New Republic who says, whatever your age, even if life is an ocean made up of many drops, you may resolve that life is too short for this errant nonsense. (laughs) Can you guess if it was positive or negative? (laughs) I'm going to say it was negative. Yeah, that was a green splotch. Uh, But on the positive side, James Rardinelli from Real View says, the key to successfully absorbing the movie may be in not trying to overthink what's on screen. I can roll with that. Uh, Peter Rayner from Christian Science Monitor says... The result is maddening, exasperating, occasionally exhilarating, and mostly boring. Uh, Eric D. Snyder from ericdsnyder.com says... And we use Eric D. Snyder a lot for this. It's the contrarians and Eric D. Snyder. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Personally, I feel ennobled by the inspiring ideas and captivated by the impressive performances both in front of and behind the camera. On the other hand, Jay Olson from Cinemix Tape says, This is the Bermuda Triangle of sci-fi, where logic and clarity vanish without a trace. Jeremy Levins from We Got Discovered says, Cloud Atlas is a mesmerizing piece of art that experimentally pushes the medium of film to daring new heights. Uh, Al Alexander says, It's kind of fascinating to watch a vaunted Oscar quartet embarrass itself under the delusion that is communicating something important. 
In all His name caps. was Al Alexander? Al Alexander. Oh, okay. And finally, for this segment, Bill Guybram from Film Racket just says, a true gem. I would agree. A true, true gem. That's would, if he was an actual. A, yeah, it, if he had paid attention, he would call it the true, true. If he was a real wordsmith, he uh, he wouldn't have missed that opportunity. So the film takes place across three millenniums. Uh, so it I, takes three millenniums to watch as well. <laughs> I think what I I, I fig- figured would be best here because the movie itself uh, just kind of skips around, and it, we would get confused, and it would be nearly impossible to make a coherent train of thought if we tried to go with how the movie lays out. So I think we can just break it down by story. Yeah, we're actually going to do you a favor, and we're going to tell you the story the way that the movie should have told you the story, which is straightforward. Uh, Of course, in doing so, I think we're going to reveal what the movie tries to obscure, which is like, this is really not that great. But with all the jumping around in time and all the, like, stunt casting, they're just hoping that you don't realize that it's nonsense. That's where you're wrong, because all the jumping around means within a 15-minute time frame, we get a mustached uh, Jim Sturgis, uh, an Asian Jim Sturgis, a soccer hooligan Jim Sturgis. It's it's fantastic. So, uh, going to the always reliable Wikipedia, what I'll just do is read the brief plot summation of each part, and then we can just kind of delve into it. Okay. Uh, So... We start in the Pacific Islands in the year 1849. American lawyer Adam Ewing witnesses the whipping of a um, slave. Now, Adam Ewing is the mustached Jim Sturgis. Mustached Jim Sturgis. Uh, the slave, uh, Atua, who he befriends, um, Atua stows away on Ewing's ship where he convinces Ewing to advocate uh, for him to join the crew as a free man. Atua saves Ewing's life before Dr. Henry Goose played by Tom Hanks, who is wearing some of the most awesome prop teeth that you've ever seen in your life. Uh, uh, if it was like the 1830s or whatever, then that I would have been impressed. In this era of awesome CGI, <laughs> I don't know why you would just go back to primitive prosthetics to do disfigure Tom Hanks in a way that just goes against everything that nature has taught us is right. <laughs> Tom Hanks is... Especially in this era of just fallen idols, uh, Tom Hanks is one of the few remaining uh, upstanding Hollywood stars. Right? Yes. I mean, we've been discussing this for a couple episodes now, and uh, we just came from uh, you know our previous episode, which was all Hanks all the time, all awesomeness. And now here, the movie opens with a really old. Tom Hanks, like Tom Hanks in really bad J. Edgar type, like old man makeup. And then it doesn't that's, get any better. Cause... That's an insult. <laughs> I felt insulted. I, I, I was like, don't promise me Hanks on the DVD cover and then give me like old, almost unrecognizable Hanks. Not just in that beginning, you know, because that's just like the, uh, you know, that's the way the movie's framed with old Hanks telling the story. But then when you get to uh, to the mustache uh jim sturge's story mm-hmm. uh dr hanks is yeah he has a big nose really fucked up teeth and uh and he's doing the just reference a past episode he's doing the the weasley john lovitz kind of character uh which i think goes against everything that you want from tom hanks mm-hmm. it, well uh that's where you're wrong because that's right it goes against what you want but that's where tom hanks was courageous for tackling this movie and that he takes that away from you within the first five minutes of the movie and he's the bad guy for a lot of this i think that's the genius of it though because you do get the hanks you want in some parts yeah but listen alex i 
I pay for my ticket not to watch Tom Hanks take chances. I want the Tom Hanks I want. You know, if he wants to go and do experimental theater uh, off Broadway, that's great because I'm not going to go watch that. But if I go to a blockbuster uh, headlined by Tom Hanks and the people that made The Matrix, I don't want to see Tom Hanks try to go all indie and experimental and put prosthetics on his face and whatever. I want the guy from Big and the guy from Forrest Gump. I, I, I don't want this. this so you would not have Tom seen Hanks. Black Swan if Tom Hanks was in the Natalie Portman role? No, I would have. Uh, I would have searched for some clips online, mm-hmm. you know, just to see how that that scene with Mila Kunis plays out. But <laughs> that would have been fantastic. Uh, I so, want to see Tom Hanks like spinning around and turning into a black swan, finding a feather. Yeah. Ah. Uh, again, Doctor Henry Goose has the intention of killing uh, Adam Ewing to steal his gold. Ewing uh, has a big treasure chest that's essentially full of gold. Why is he lugging around a treasure chest filled with gold? That is never explained. It just that's the first quirk you see about his character. That is what makes this an indie film. These little quirks where he just has this treasure chest and you don't know why, and she you know he talks the, to it. He doesn't just have the treasure chest. I guess wallets were not invented back then because he carries the key to the chest around his neck. Yeah. Yes. Like he's on some sort of all-time RPG. You can tell the time frame because the treasure chest does not have, you know, the face recognition technology on it. He can't just like do the thumb where he like yeah, exactly. the thumbprint and then it opens. No. It, it's just... Otherwise Tom Hanks just would have cut his hand off and used it. No, because Tom Hanks in this segment of the of, of the movie is evil. Dr. Hanks is not just evil. He's just kind of he likes to take the longest road to achieve his goal. If his goal is to get that's what's brilliant about it. He convinces Jim Sturgis. Let, let me finish reading this here. Okay. Uh, so he's hoping to steal his gold, and uh, Atua saves him before he can deliver a final dose of poison he claims that will treat a parasitic worm. In the United States, Ewing and his wife Tilda denounce her father's complicity in slavery and leave to join the abolition movement. So that is that part of the film that premise now getting back to what you had mentioned that's where tom hanks's plan is brilliant he's the doctor and he tells him he has a parasitic worm so it's the long game he's slowly poisoning him right but unfortunately why? referencing our last gray air episode <laughs> where leslie mann says she would slowly poison paul rudd uh, and this movie's almost as long as uh this is 40 no no <laughs> you could watch this four times and not be done with this is 40 now Paul Rudd in prosthetics with bad teeth, that would have been a little interesting. I, that I expect from Paul Rudd. Tom Hanks, I want to see Tom Hanks' face. Uh, it would be like the Bill Brasky skit from Saturday Night Live with the big <laughs> fake teeth. Uh, but I just don't understand his plan. Why does he have to make things so difficult for himself? So he, his plan is that through this voyage, which lasts, I don't know, months – you know, this is well. Jim Sturgis goes from mustache to Jim Sturgis to full bearded right, Jim Sturgis. Full bearded. So it, it's it's just uh, it takes a long time for them to travel from wherever he was to wherever he's going, which is home, right? Mm-hmm. And the entire time he's writing to his wife and thinking that he might not see her again because Hanks has convinced him that he's sick, mm-hmm. and uh, and and he's just making him sicker by giving him quotation marks medicine that's really poison. Yeah, right, and so. Instead of poisoning him and killing him overnight, he's killing him through the entire trip. Why? Because he doesn't want to raise suspicion. Okay, number one, 
Hanks already looks suspicious <laughs> with that nose and those teeth and the he way would not he... be allowed within 500 feet of a school with the way he looks in this movie <laughs> he's literally around the the first time that we see him when Serge is season for the first time he's uh digging on the shore digging teeth. up human teeth yeah exactly mm-hmm. you know this is not a reputable doctor <laughs> Let alone, you know, a reputable human being. It was a different time. You know, they still had slaves then. They haven't come around to human decency at that yeah. point. Oh, yeah, yeah. So let's get to the slave part because this is also the movie trying to uh, appear progressive at the end. You know, because it opens with Sturgis watching this, this slave getting whipped. And then he and, faints. Right. That's when he gets he gets a spell. And mm-hmm. he falls. And that's the, the opening that Hanks has to tell him, oh, you're sick. You have a parasite. Let me poison you. Uh, and that. Uh, Foolproof. Yeah, so so the idea, this story basically chronicles Jim Sturgis's change of heart regarding slavery. Mm-hmm. Because when it opens, he's just having dinner with his uh, in-laws and just having a great time and getting being served by uh, by by slaves, and he doesn't think twice of it. Yeah. Uh, and then by the Hugh end, Hugh Grant the movie, it has a really throwaway part in this first sequence where he has a really righteous chin beard. <laughs> I forgot about mm-hmm. that. Because he's not talking like Hugh Grant. I mean, Hugh Grant is the unsung hero of this movie, but we'll get to that in real talk. Yeah. Uh, uh, Susan Sarandon has a, also a th- – well, every every Susan Sarandon part in this movie is a throwaway part. But mm-hmm. in, in this one, she's just at the table for like two lines. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I guess she's Hugh Grant's, she's Hugh Grant's wife, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, they're talking about slavery. And then by the time you get to the end of the story uh, – because a slave saved his life, then uh, Sturgis has become completely anti-slavery, and he's gonna like join the resistance and mm-hmm. like you know try to change things. Uh, and uh, so the way that the movie makes him change his mind is by having this slave, uh, Atula, pr- protect protect him. Atula, the classic depiction of uh, of the black man as this kind of like subservient magical being. You know, because he stows away in the ship, then he reveals himself to uh to Jim Sturgis, and Sturgis tries to convince the captain to uh to help to help him, him to you know to accept him as part of the crew, and then this guy turns out to be the best sailor that they've ever had in that in that ship. There is no reason why he should be able to do the things that he does when the captain puts him to test. He tells him to like. You know, rig the sail or whatever, mm-hmm. and then and then while well, he being explains shot he at, was yeah he explains though he was raised on a, on a boat as a child. Okay, there's a difference between being raised on a boat and being just like a superhero because <laughs> this guy he climbs the mast and starts like doing the rig. It really is like the the scene where you meet Buzz Lightyear in the first Toy Story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, they shoot at him to to fuck with him, and then he not only doesn't get killed there, but then he jumps and. Pulls a rope with him, and that unfurls the sails. And then he like swings like Spider Man all around the boat, and mm-hmm. then lands and basically takes a bow. Yeah, and it's like, look at me, I'm the cool slave. And we got a, a new uh, member of the crew. Right, that is a little like, disrespectful, I think, to all the slaves that can't do that. Like, th- of course, it has to be this exceptional slave that's the one that gets saved. You know, what about all the slaves that didn't grow up on a boat and don't have the luck and the acrobatic skills that this guy has? You know, so well, they... that's why Jim Sturgis is going to go out and help. He knows what's right moving forward, and he's going to do what he can. And what does Hugo Weaving say to him that he's just going to be a drop in an ocean? And he says, "Well, what is an ocean but a collection of drops?" So he knows what he's doing. That's like a Madonna song trying to pass his 
deep philosophy. The other thing, though, uh, to close on the slave uh, uh, angle is that for all like the oohs and ahs of how awesome this this slave is, uh, the movie won't let him fully save Jim Surges because when it, it, it's getting to the end, right? And and Hanks just has apparently like one last dose of, of poison to administer. Mm-hmm. And the slave, uh, what's his name? Atuna? Atua. He won't leave Surges' side. He's like, well, if he's going to die, I want to be by him. And uh, Hanks kicks him out. And then Atua finally like breaks in and uh, knocks Hanks out and tries to like get uh, Surges to throw up and then Hanks gets up and there's like a big fight and whatever and the movie robs Atua from his final triumph of defeating the white man that was all for his slavery and instead Jim Sturgis brutally murders Tom Hanks right it's like I'm sorry Sturgis because you know Atua the guy that plays Atua he's not really in the rest of the movie I think he has like a few bit parts where he shows up here and there like Mm -hmm. a la Susan Sarandon but uh Sturgis is all over this movie. He didn't need yeah. to have a hero moment here because he has plenty of hero moments everywhere else. He has like a futuristic firefight. He has a sex scene. You know, the guy that plays Atua only had this one story and he didn't even get to kill Tom Hanks. Instead, James Sturgis, who was dying five seconds earlier, finds the strength not only to get up, but also to lift his treasure chest full of gold and smash Tom Hanks's head. Isn't it ironic the object of his desire was what led to his demise? Yeah, not very Brilliant. subtle, these Wachowski. <laughs> and then you see Tom Hanks bleeding out onto a pile of gold. And then Do you get it, Alex? <laughs> Jim Sturgis makes it back and again, yeah, he and his wife leave uh, to join the abolition movement. Uh we move along to End of part one. <laughs> We move along to 1936, an English composer, Robert uh, Frobisher, finds work. Uh, he essentially works as a copyright for an aging composer by the name of Vivian Aris, uh, allowing Frobisher to compose his own masterpiece, The Cloud Atlas Sextet. Frobisher reads Ewing's journal, which he has found with the latter portion missing among the books at Ayers Mansion. Ayers demands credit for the Cloud Atlas sextet and threatens to expose Frobisher's homosexuality if he refuses. Frobisher shoots Ayers and goes into hiding using the name Ewing. He finishes the Cloud Atlas sextet and shoots himself before his lover Rufus Sixsmith arrives. So we're introduced to Frobisher. Um, Obviously, uh, he's with... I don't know if they would establish it as his boyfriend, but... um, It's the guy that he's sleeping with at the time. And they're in love. So this is the guy, the the, the guy that sticks out in the movie because he's the one guy that, at least as far as I, I know, he ben was Wishaw. not a star. Yeah, it's yeah. like you don't know him from anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that he was probably like, you know, when this was an indie movie, he was like the guy spearheading it, and then all the big stars got attached to the project. He was like, <laughs> shit. Uh, but the composer, Eris, is played by... Uh, Jim Broadbend. Who, Jim Broadbend, who played the captain of the ship in the previous story. Yes. And he has a pretty wicked white goatee in this particular sequence. Uh, this is one of the more interesting uh, sequences of the film in that it intertwines, obviously, it would have been a massive taboo at the time, the homosexuality, uh, but also basically the, the way the music's written, uh, the insecurities of writers, things of that nature. Um, also, just the insecurity of man. And then also just from a casting standpoint, it's an interesting sequence because you get Halle Berry in Whiteface. Oh, yeah. Let's go. Let's start with that. Let's start with uh, the casting of a black actress as a white 
person. How do you defend this, Alex Mattis? In this day and age, why? I mean, I think there's, there's a bigger point to be made about just how unimaginative and potentially cheap uh, the filmmakers were that they just felt the need to recycle the same six actors over and over instead of opening up this massive production to plenty of other actors that are looking for chances to be in in a movie, you know, that's legit. And instead, no, they just gave Tom Hanks and Hugh Grant and Halle Berry and Jim Broadbent, uh, Jim Sturgis, like, all the parts. Yes. Even if they didn't fit. It was a vision of the film to show a continuity of souls that's critical to the story. That is... I, I wish that uh, we had, like, a black person here to ask them how they felt when they saw Halle Berry white-faced. Uh, unfortunately, I think if we go her. back several uh, decades... There have been enough white actors to play blackface that I think you know they they so, earned one with so, Halle Berry. Okay, so this is what this is. This is this is payback. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I was. Has anybody told the Wachowskis that they're not black? <laughs> no, I think it's it, with that same logic. You would be very much more offended the later on in the movie that we oh, go. Oh, I was. Okay, so uh, Halle Berry's an Oscar winner. She can do whatever she wants. Catwoman being proof. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was it was just off putting because it looks there's something unreal about this. It, it's Halle Berry, you know. It's Halle Berry. That's not you know. It, she just kind of like how you know that Tom Hanks is handsome and charming, and you just can't buy him as the creepy doctor in the previous story. Mm-hmm. Here, you're like, well, that's Halle Berry's not white. Why is he? It, it just it's just distracting at the very least and offensive at the worst. The Wachowskis and uh, Twiker, Twi. Twyker, uh, we're going to have some difficulty with that, so we, we do apologize there to Tom about that. But uh, the directors told the cast of this. Hey, at least we're acknowledging that he co-directed this movie, which is more than most people most do. People do. <laughs> uh, the directors did. They informed the actors that they wanted them to think of their roles as a quote genetic strain rather than a series of individual parts. Uh, with actions and one storyline affecting the other. That just sounds like, listen, we still have Halle Berry for another two Because there was plenty of shit talk from different you know, proactive groups and things of that nature about the use of white face, quote, yellow face, um, those types of things, where they defended it as they wanted to have this set cast of people to uh, play all these parts and that it's more of, kind of like we touched on at the beginning, it's more about thematic concurrency as opposed to... We shall not go quietly into the darkness, Alex. <laughs> we will scream and protest and post angry online tweets. Well, I guess. Uh, this one had the least weaving in and out, despite the fact that it had the most heartbreaking of conclusions with uh, Fro Bisher, of course, committing suicide. He steals a Luger from Eris' uh, bedside table. He uses it to shoot him, and then he knows his days are numbered, so he goes out and um, enjoys his last day before he knows he's going to have to take care of it. Uh, heart-wrenching um, Boz Lerman-esque scene here in which he's just a little too late, Romeo and Juliet style. His, uh, his lover, Sixsmith, shows up and at the hotel where he's staying, and here's the gunshot right before he can get to him. Uh, pure glorification of suicide. And I shiver to think of how many confused teenagers would suddenly realize that, oh, well, maybe, you know, it's okay to just give up when things go wrong. Uh, he even says it. He, you know, his overwrought narration that runs through this sequence, uh, 
uh, he he actually says, you know, people think that suicide is a bad thing. It's the coward's way, but it actually takes a lot of courage to end things. I did not care for that. Yeah, that that monologue there. I can't really defend that particular part. Uh, he there's really no reason for him to give up, especially once he gives up because he wants to give up. He uh, his lover Six Smith, who's played by uh, the poor man's Benedict Cumberbatch, he. He's been receiving his letters. He's on his way to come save him. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that he doesn't get there in time. He truly is the poor man's Benedict Cumberbatch, James D'Arcy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He he gets there on time and then this little fucker hides from him. <laughs> he was determined to kill himself. And so he hides from his boyfriend and then kills himself after after the boyfriend's kind of like lost the, the scent for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh so that that alone it makes that segment just to me uh, tasteless. But but then there's more. There's the fact that you know once you look at the big scheme of the, what this movie is doing, the gay couple is the only set of characters that doesn't get a happy ending. Everybody else. What the fuck are you talking about? Okay, this is like the saddest story. No, when we get to twenty one forty four, I mean, there's not really a happy ending for the people involved there. It is because the movie's bullshit logic doubles back on itself and it tells you that's okay because the, in a different She's timeline. She's a martyr. Well, that and also in a different timeline, they were together. So, uh, but we'll get there. <laughs> okay. With love comes tragedy. I think that's what mainly this part oh, was trying to say such here. Like, also, it's like, is he really gay? He ends up having sex with Halle Berry, who's the wife of this composer that he admires Mm -hmm. absolutely no regrets but he said that was to throw him off the scent despite the fact that they knew the whole time right they knew the whole time and he's not okay there's one thing what he says in his narration another thing what you see happening and he's having a good time Mm -hmm. yeah it's like how often do you get the chance to have sex with Halle Berry as she's painted white like that's a once in a lifetime opportunity Uh, we go to San Francisco in 1973, where journalist uh, Louisa Ray, and this is full Halle Berry in all her beauty and glory, um, meets Rufus Sixsmith uh, from our previous storyline here. Regular Halle Berry. I wouldn't say regular. I would just say... I, 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 on my notes, I have it as sassy Halle Berry. Samity's Halle Berry. I have my notes. Most of it is labeled either by... For Jim Sturgis, it's what incarnation he's in, but uh, 70s Halle Berry is what I have here. Which, what I love, just quick sidebar, the way she's dressed and her hair and the way she looks and everything in 1973 San Francisco looks like any person you would see in Austin in 2017. <laughs> um, she meets, again, the aforementioned Rufus Sixsmith, uh, who's now a nuclear physicist. Sixsmith tips off Ray to a conspiracy to create a catastrophe at a nuclear reactor run by Lloyd Hooks, but is killed by Hooks's hitman, Bill Smoke, before he can give her a report as proof. This quick jump in here, uh, Six Smith, still played by James D.R.C. With, with J. Edgar, old man makeup. <laughs> Lloyd Hooks uh, is played by Hugh Grant, who brings just unequivocal, unrivaled... British smarm. I was just, I'm trying to think of all the more adjectives and words I can throw on it here. Just unadulterated Hugh Grantness to the role. Um, and Bill Smoke is played by Hugo Weaving because the Wachowskis had to give him one Agent Smith scene. Well, not just that, but they also they refused to cast him as a likable character in all six stories. <laughs> uh, both him and Hugh Grant, they just don't get any sort if of. If he's redemption. not wildly racist, he's also he's just killing people. He's cold a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, he's wildly racist in this one too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. yeah. 
I, poor poor I, weaving. He seemed to a, enjoy it a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't really appreciate it. It's such a simplification of racial tension when this movie basically builds up to uh, black people battling white people. Mm-hmm. And, and the one white person that kind of like, actually the two white people that reach out uh, to the black community, they get killed. Uh, yes. Six Smith earlier in the story and later on uh what would you call this version of tom hanks blonde tom hanks i have him as blonde tom hanks yeah but was he killed by right yeah they put a bomb in his plane okay yeah that's what i thought but i i wasn't entirely sure right when uh, he realizes he's falling in love with a black woman his plane blows up cool 70s tom hanks <laughs> cool to, yeah he's not cool at all uh, <laughs> Uh, Ray finds Frobisher's letters to Six Smith and tracks down a record of Frobisher's Cloud Atlas sextet. Isaac Seish, who is Tom Hanks, another scientist at the power plant, passes her a copy of Six Smith's report. Smoke kills Seish by blowing up his plane, thank you, and runs Ray's car off a bridge. She manages to escape, but the report is destroyed. With help from the plant's head of security, Joe Napier, Ray evades another assassination attempt, which results in Smoke's death. With another copy of the report obtained from Six Fifth's niece, she exposes the plot and oil executives are indicted. Uh, now, Joe Napier, played by uh, David Keith David. Yes. Uh, who, you know, that audible chocolate that he just emits from his mouth anytime he talks, you pay attention. Uh, his part now here is really good. listen here. Yeah. <laughs> his part here is fantastic. But, yeah, the reason we uh, jested about cool Tom Hanks is when they're at the laboratory, they go out on a patio or just a balcony, Hanks and Barry, that is, and she takes out a joint and says, "Do you mind?" And he says, "No, I'm cool." Yeah, and that's uh, it's. I really hope that Tom Hanks was not trying to play cool because he is not cool for the rest of the the, the life of this character, which is not very long actually. Uh, but there is a that Wikipedia entry you just read omits uh, one of my uh, biggest pet peeves with this story, which is like the inclusion of the precocious teenager. Mm-hmm. Who is the one that figures stuff out? Actually, he is a uh, Halle Berry's neighbor, I guess. Yeah, this Hispanic kid who's like sassier than her. He manages to outsass seventies uh, Halle Berry. He's the one that figures out that Six Smith had a niece mm-hmm. because he figures out that he he can tell. He's doing that thing where you rub your pencil on uh, on the surface of something. Uh, just to kind of like highlight what's been written on it or yeah. on top of it. And he does that and he uncovers an address and a name. It's like, oh, it's his, it's, uh, his niece. And that's really what points Halle Berry into the direction of like one more person that could have this report. Yeah. And that wraps the story up. How convenient that the Wikipedia entry omits that <laughs> because it's one of the most ridiculous plot points in, the, in that segment that you have a what? 11-year-old, 12-year-old? solve this mystery while Keith David, who's a professional <laughs> like head of security, couldn't figure it out and Halle Berry, who's supposed to be a reporter couldn't figure it out, but then you have like... I love uh, this sequence, especially the fight, the gunfight between Keith David and Hugo Weaving is it's very reminiscent of uh, um... The Civil War Jesus. You have this white guy chasing this black reporter and this black head of security I was going to say when Anton Shigar and uh, Llewellyn Moss finally go at it on the streets of Texas. But um, also what's omitted from the, the synopsis here is why uh, Bill Smoke, Hugo Weaving, is killed. He um, is very rude and very racist to uh, a Hispanic worker at this factory they end up in. And then he shoots and kills her dog. 
At that point, I wanted him dead. And fortunately, she's the one that gets revenge and bludgeons him to death with a wrench. It's such a, a cheap trigger. Uh, cheap it is not. Rewarding and satisfying for the audience. It's like, how do we like get the people involved? Because at that point, neither of us, and I would imagine that happened to most of the audience, really knows what's going on with this report. You just like... Okay, they want something and they don't have it. And Hugo Weaving also has it, wants it, and it has to be destroyed. But we don't know what the hell's going on. What's what's Hugh Grant's big scheme here? What's the plan? And what do, what do you think is happening right now? <laughs> yeah, Keith David tries to explain it, and it doesn't make sense. Uh, and they kind of make it out to like the one person that has all the answers is Tom Hanks, and he gets blown up in a plane. So really, it's just. Halle Berry following her instincts as a reporter for a She's rag. a strong, independent woman. I don't know about that. She's just, uh, you know, she's a sassy black woman from the 70s. That's that's really all it is. But it's just, once again, the movie playing on stereotypes instead of actually building a character. But despite all his charm and his Hugh Grantness, Hugh Grant is, in the end, you know, held accountable for his sins in this particular sequence, which, you know, the, the good, good prevails here, and evil is, you know... Uh, I mean, not to say there weren't some sacrifices or some casualties along the way. That dog died a hero's that, death. That dog did die a hero's death. It was loyal to to its master. Um, we go to London, 2012. Dermot Hoggins, author of a gangster memoir, murders a critic after a harsh review, generating huge sales. Hoggins' brother threatens the book's publisher, the aging Timothy Cavendish, for Hoggins' share of the profits. Cavendish's brother, Denholm, tells him to hide at Aurora House. On the way there, Cavendish reads a manuscript of a novel based on Lucia Ray's story. Believing Aurora House is a hotel, Timothy signs papers committing himself, in fact. Aurora House is a nursing home. Denholm reveals to Timothy that he sent him there as revenge for Timothy's affair with Denholm's wife. The head nurse, Noakes, who is uh, Hugo, Weaving. Hugo Weaving in his Mrs. Doubtfire performance... Yes. is abusive and denies contact with the outside world. Cavendish escapes with three other residents, resumes his relationship with an old flame, and writes a screenplay about his experience. Now, real quick, the relationship with the old flame, this was just regular Susan Sarandon. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Like, that was just like the Wachowskis putting a camera on the, on the window. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was wonderful because all the makeup and just you know different incarnations that people go through no one else in this movie has a time to be regular, but this is just normal, beautiful Susan Sarandon. They're just like, she's too beautiful. We just got to kind of get her out there. Uh, I mean, you could argue 70s Halle Berry is pretty close to normal Halle Berry. Except she's doing stunts and shit. Except, right? But Susan Sarandon is just playing with her grandkids. She doesn't even have any lines as regular Susan Sarandon. Right. She just, she's just touching people. Yes. <laughs> she puts an arm on them. Uh, this is just like uh, so. If you could like sum it up, right? Uh, this was my favorite sequence. Th- this is uh, that's because you like making fun of old people. I don't th- like making fun of old people. This this sequence is all about like no fu- old people are funny and pratfalls involving old people are even funnier. No, because it's really it's- sad the way the nursing homes work. Because there are some uh, elderly that do need care, but other times they're just kind of thrown in there willy nilly, and it's a sad form of entrapment. And in this, you get to see them, you know, have their comeuppance, and you realize they're smarter and sharper than okay, the people containing them. They get into a car and they don't know how to turn it on. 
it's a different time period. This is, you know, 2012. Okay, they, they're like not familiar with was, automatics. That guy was not trapped in the nursing home for years. He was there for like, what, a week tops? And then suddenly he comes out and he can't handle a new car. He's not like Robert De Niro getting out of prison and Jackie Brown where he's just trying to figure out how the air conditioning works or something. <laughs> he was like a respected publisher that was making a lot of money. Uh, he but, had people drive him around. That's the it, thing. <laughs> and, it, you know, living in London, it's a lot of public transit. You don't know what's going on. So, so but we first, also had rock and roll at Tom Hanks in this sequence. Right, yeah. right. I was going to say. So first, the connection to the previous segment is that, uh, yeah, that manuscript that he reads, The Adventures of Lisa Ray or whatever, yeah. it's supposed to be written. <laughs> the Adventures of. <laughs> what? It's like, I don't know, uh, Murder at Dawn, a Lisa Ray mystery or something. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, it's supposed to be written by the sassy Hispanic neighbor from uh, – uh, the 70s story because mm-hmm. even then at some point he's like this would make a good mystery novel and yeah. Halle Berry's like you're right Let's, I'll drink to that I'll drink to that and then it becomes a, a and a, then not Stranger Things kid writes the novel <laughs> uh, so so, <laughs> so that's I guess that's like the only connection uh, to it it's like the filmmakers are just struggling to to, to fill out the cast because you have once again Tom Hanks playing so badly and distractingly against type once again i don't pay to see tom hanks trying to stretch his acting muscles and play some sort of gangster uh that's i just that's not my tom hanks he in a lot of ways is an updated version you know he's a lot uh it's kind of like brad pitt in snatch where a lot of what he says is unintelligible (laughs) and he has like an awesome uh you know pinstripe goatee much more swearing than you'd expect from tom hanks very offensive and uh, then again not that this movie knows what it wants or whatever because you would think i was gonna say it would definitely alienate uh older viewers because they like me they don't want to watch tom hanks do this but then it is the same segment where like i said they constantly make fun of old people so they don't really care so jim broadbent plays the publisher Mm -hmm. uh uh and then hugo weaving as the Despite how much we're putting, ratchet. yeah. Despite how much we're putting over Tom Hanks for this part here, uh, this really is. This is um, Broadbent's. This is his story, right? This is his story, mm-hmm. uh, where he gets to be the hero instead of being uh, the asshole composer from the or the previous or two stories ago, or the asshole captain <laughs> from the first story. The racist, the homophobe. Yeah, racist, homophobe, and here he's just he's just old. Yeah. Uh, He's befuddled. He's a buffoon. <laughs> a befuddled buffoon. Uh, Hugh Grant has a quick turn as uh, his brother. It's oh, Hugh, yes. Hugh Grant playing James Caan, basically. Yeah. Uh, with just caked on makeup. Once again, the makeup J. Makeup for days. Yeah. <laughs> it's, when we were watching, I was like, is that fucking uh, Hugh Grant? And you're like, yup. <laughs> if you dig there for a couple of days, you'll find Hugh Grant <laughs> yes. underneath that cake. Exactly. Uh, and then uh, who else do we have? Well, Susan Sarandon playing uh, the one that got away. Mm-hmm. And then old people that don't show up again in any other uh, of the stories. Because why would they? They're old people. And this movie doesn't respect them. Not everyone in The Great Escape was an A-lister, man. You got to you know, you gotta ring this in with some reality. Right. But this movie goes through so many contrivances to recast several actors in different roles all over the place. But then when it comes to... These uh, old people that are just, you know, they're in in this. They're as important as Jim Broadbent in this part of the story. And then you never see them again. Like as actors, you don't see them show up later in the future. Uh, you know, even in small bits. 
Jim Broadbent shows up in every single story. Moving along, uh, once they escape the nursing home, they head off for a celebratory toast at a local pub. Uh, this really doesn't have much to do with the plot. The only reason I want to bring it up is because we have Jim Sturgis decked out with bleached hair as a soccer hooligan in the nearby bar um, as it leads to an all-out brawl at the bar where the nursing staff gets into it with the locals and um, our heroes from the nursing home, the older folk, are able to get away and you know live their life out complete. It's not even like... Because you could say that maybe this is the one story where there is not some sort of inherent racism to any of the characters. But there is sort of because that that big brawl at the bar is it's basically an England versus Ireland, mm-hmm. right? Or is it England versus Scotland? Now I'm Scotland. being racist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of those European feuds that they have. Uh yeah, and yeah, oh, you know, Tom. That Hanks. would be more nationalist than racist though. <laughs> it's still, you know. I it's guess. a form of aces. It's like those white people are their problems. You know, <laughs> if they're not trying to oppress and fight uh, people of different color, they're just fighting among themselves because, you know, one is blunder than the other, I think. Uh, but Tom Hanks also shows up in this uh, sequence very briefly. Doesn't he? Oh, no, no, no. I'm thinking of the next one. Yeah, he's the author in this one. And the next one, he's like playing Jim Broadbent's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but the the screenplay that does come back into to play um, that he writes, it's eventually turned into a movie where an incarnation of Tom Hanks stars as him in it. Uh, and it's a movie that's watched in Seoul in the year 2144. Uh, Sonmi 451 is a fabricant, a human cloned for save, slave labor, living as a server at a fast food restaurant in a detopian neo-Seoul Korea. She is exposed to the ideas of rebellion by another fabricant and friend, Yuna 939. After witnessing Yuna being killed for rebelling, Sonmi is rescued from captivity by rebel commander Hai Jo Chang. He exposes Sonmi to the world, including the banned writings of Alexander Sol... I don't remember how... I don't remember either. Yeah. He exposes Somni to the world, including banned writings and a film version of Cavendish's experience. They are found, and Somni is captured. Hai Jo rescues her, introducing her to the leader of the rebellion movement, uh, not Princess Leia, and shows her that clones are not freed at the end of their contract, but killed and recycled into food for other clones. Somni makes a public broadcast of her story and manifesto. The authorities attack. Haiju is killed in the firefight, and Sonmi is recaptured. After recounting her story to an archivist, she is executed. Uh, again, this clone is, uh, like we were mentioning earlier, she becomes a martyr for you know, some right. things down this the line. Right, this by the same actress that plays Jim Sturgis' wife in the first story. Yes. Uh, and Jim Sturgis plays the object of her affection in this story. Uh, Haiju. Haiju, also known as... Asian Jim Sturgis? Asian Jim Sturgis, yes, that's correct. Okay, Alex, if you were uh, Asian and you saw Jim Sturgis in this makeup, how would that make you feel? Because I'm not Asian and it made me feel really uncomfortable. I felt for the context of this movie, it made sense since they were it was all the same actors in the same stories. Now, again, as I mentioned on this, this wasn't fucking Mickey Rooney, Misho Shari. <laughs> so uh, I don't exactly think it's something that you know should have been 
All I can think I of think is... I think for what the directors and storytellers are trying to do, it makes sense. All those Asian actors lining up to be part of this movie, and they probably got relegated to background extras because, you no, know, James Sturgis needs to have more lines in this movie. He was not happy with just... You know, being the the lawyer in the first story and the hooligan and the story. in the end, those same extras though have gotten a lot more work since this than Jim Sturgis has. <laughs> so I'm not terribly upset about it. <laughs> uh, okay, this, so this is the bleakest of all the stories. Yeah, this is. Uh, it, you know, okay, so if you if you had to sum up, like you know, you had the one story that was glorifying suicide, and you had the story that was like making fun of old people. And you have the story that was pandering to, like, anti-slavery. And then uh, what would you call that? Well, I guess the Halle Berry and the Semite story is about uh, racial tension between, like... You know, I wouldn't say that. It was more Because it's of... like all the bad guys are white. Hugh Grant. When, when are they not? <laughs> In real life, I mean. Uh, Look at the commander in chief right now. You're gonna tell me <laughs> that white man's not a bad guy? I this movie was not made under the Trump administration, so what are you telling me that this was supposed to be some prophetic uh, piece of work? I don't uh. buy it. I think that they were just. Uh, I think the Wachowskis and Twikart. What did we decide on? Twikwer. Twikwer. Uh, they were just overcompensating for their white guilt. And Jesus. So you have Hugh Grant being the bad guy in every segment, and you have Hugo Weaving being the bad guy in every segment. Uh, but anyway, on this I, one... It's very easy for Hugh Grant to be the bad guy. <laughs> and we haven't gotten to his best work in this oh, film Oh, yeah, yet. no, they're building up to that, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this one... Uh, Tyquer. Tyquer. Yeah. We're not going to remember this. No. Uh, Sorry, Tom. Uh, but then... Okay, so in this one, you have the connection of the movie, right? Which doesn't make any sense that anybody would make a movie about what happened to this like publisher guy back in what? 2012. It's a very interesting story. It's pure it's fluff. It's it's just like it and especially okay, maybe you know, like some indie filmmaker would do it, but you, there's no way you get Tom Hanks attached to play that part. It, and yet you have that I would believe that being more of like a Leave Schreiber role. Yes, you need somebody that's kind of like, you know, they just need to keep working. So, <laughs> they'll <Hey>. take whatever. <laughs> uh but then, so that's the the one connection, really. And then you have, uh, so you have Jim Sturgis as Asian Jim Sturgis. Then you have uh, the main girl, Sumni. Uh, mm -hmm. She's Jim Sturgis' wife in the first story. You have uh, Hugo Weaving once again. Sumni played by uh, Duna Bay. Okay, so mm -hmm. Bay, and she's in all the other stories, but I think these are the only two words. You know, the first one and this one are the only ones where she's, uh, she's a big part. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Hugo Weaving as... Asian Hugo Weaving, which is even harder to take seriously than Jim Sturgis. Yeah, Hugo. He has like the bowl cut, I think, like the Three Stooges mo. Yeah, like. he looks like the Lord that, um, the big hologram Lord that uh, Kylo Ren has to answer to in <laughs> Force Awakens. Darth Weaving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, who else Mr. you have? Mister Skywalker. <laughs> Uh, Keith David comes back as the leader of uh, the resistance mm -hmm. here, uh, and then. So my understanding from this was uh, Soon Me was basically a chosen one. It was like in in the cards, it was her destiny to do this. It's it's basically they're they're just redoing the Matrix, but trying to make it grittier. She's the one. A happy ending. She's the one. Or She's... the the each. <laughs> or shit, that's a Japanese, not Korean. We'll cut this. You, ju you just managed to be more racist than the Wachowskis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, she. <laughs> Isn't there a, also a Jet Li movie called The One? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever oh. happened to Jet Li? He retired. He knew when to call it quits. He saw J- Asian Jim Sturges. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> like it's all lost. It's, why even try? Uh, but then, uh, yeah. So she's game over, man. <laughs> the Wachowski's riffing on like the Chosen One and Revolution and taking some really cheap shots at McDonald's and all other like fast food places like that. Why would they have to be the source of our of all evil? And even so, if I find it hard to believe that let's say that this was happening in the real world if McDonald's was like using uh clones to serve you and uh and then you know you found out that those clones were then being killed and used to like feed the new clones it was like yes that is horrible and that is a new story or whatever but it's not like like a civilization toppling kind of thing you know what i mean like yeah. they treat it here like that is the biggest secret of all time and this is really what's gonna like change the world or whatever especially in this day and age we've kind of noticed that two weeks after two weeks like the new cycle just goes through (laughs) so it was like oh yeah the big mcdonald's scandal and then in two weeks nobody cares so at the very end this all these people sacrifice their lives so she can this messiah can go and record her message do you really think that and then she's euthanized in the end. Yeah, all these years into the future, people are still gonna. Two weeks later, people wouldn't even remember that that happened. It's a different time. It was. It's. Uh, it's the future. Yeah, I know. It's like almost 140 years from now. 130, excuse me. Right. So, do you think it's actually gonna get better to where people's attention span? You can't tell me that it gets better when it actually gets worse. You know, they're saying that in the future you're gonna have McDonald's. You tell me if there's an army of clones, and then they learn that you're like really fucking them over. They're not gonna be like, "You used to me, Skinner. <laughs> you used to me." <laughs> oh, soil and grid is made of people. <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, and we do Asian Jim Sturgis is apparently also badass Jim Sturgis because man, he is just action, this is, action star Jim Sturgis. Yeah, this is Wachowski esque in just the the flipty doos and all the gunfire and whatnot. Uh, but of course, it becomes too much in the end. Is he? he has he's cool- poisoned by Tom Hanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that poison finally made its way down their generations and, and got him. Uh, yeah, he has all the a cool millennium gadgets. later. <laughs> uh, yeah, he has. Uh, he has the gadgets and the uh, the cool guns. He he shoots down a lot of people and like spacecraft as well. And he somehow falls like off the top of a building and it's lives. Survived. And There's it's no never explanation. Explained. No, nope, none at all. <laughs> Not even, you know, Loki telling Thor, what type of black magic did father have to conjure up for this? No, the big reveal is because I think that at first when he rescues her, he just tells her, her uh, his name. And then uh, after, you know, they have that firefight and he falls to his death and then he shows up again and she's like, who are you? And then you think he's going to be like, I'm the I'm Jim Sturgis. <laughs> I'm the super soldier or whatever. But no, he's just like, I'm captain, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that doesn't explain how you survive a fall. Of, of course know. it does. <laughs> like you don't become ranking captain without surviving some he's the captain now. precarious situations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second. Yeah, that is. It is also just gruesome for the sake of being gruesome. I think that in order to get you to buy this, uh, the stakes and all this stuff, it just uh, they they try to shock you with the way that you know these clones are disposed of. You know, mm-hmm. shot to the head, then like hooked by the feet and dragged out so they can hang upside down and whatever. That is as unnecessary as all these 
weird Tom Hanks performances. <laughs> Why couldn't Tom Hanks be, you know, the hero? Why couldn't he be Jim Sturgis? Well, it's funny you ask if Tom Hanks could be the hero because we move along to uh, the timeline is not given at first. Like all these other ones, it tells us what year it's in. We find it eventually the year is 2311. Uh, but when we're first introduced to it, where it's at the big aisle and it says it's after the fall. So basically, technology, all of mankind crashes. Uh, but Zachary Bailey. Because Bale- McDonald's was exactly. <laughs> creating clones. Because Son Mi had to, you know, she blew the lid off of it all. Oh, yeah, there you go. And the clones fought back. Uh, Zachary Bailey, who is Tom Hanks in this sequence, uh, lives in a primitive po- post apocalyptic society on the big island of Hawaii. The tribe's people worship Sunmi 451. Their sacred text is taken from the broadcast of her manifesto. Zachary is plagued by the visions of a demonic figure, Old Gregory, played by Hugo Weaving. Old Georgie. Old Georgie. They never call him Old Gregory. Uh, I'm sorry. It was Old Georgie. I don't know why I read that. Uh, oh. <laughs> I saw I saw Georgie and Zachary together, so I, I combined them. I, so. thought, I thought the Wikipedia page was... Uh... Was wrong. That would be great, though. Uh, Zachary is plagued by the visions of a demonic figure, old Georgie. Zachary, his brother-in-law, Adam, who is Thor Jim Sturgis, <laughs> and his nephew are attacked by a cannibalistic Kona tribe, uh, the head of which is, in his last and most notable performance, Hugh Grant, who he has no lines in this character, does he? I mean, he, he grunts. And he eats. And he eats and gargles. Um by the way, Hugh Grant was also in the previous story. He was the the McDonald's manager that liked to wake up clones in the middle of the night and, and have rape sex them. With them. Yeah. yeah, and drink soap and drink it made soap. Him feel yeah. better. Uh, but yeah, he's the leader of this tribe here, and he looks just gnarly as fuck. Zachary runs into hiding, and his companions are murdered. So Thor, Jim Sturgis, we hardly knew ye. His village is visited by Maronim a member of the Precincts, an advanced society using the last remnants of high technology, but who are dying from a plague and whose only hope to leave Earth. Maranim's mission is to find a remote communication station on Manua Sol to send an SOS to off-world humans. Katkin, Zachary's niece, falls sick. In exchange for saving her, Zachary guides Maronim to the station where Sonmi 451 made her broadcast. Returning, Zachary finds his tribe slaughtered by the Kona. He kills the sleeping Kona chief, Hugh Grant, brutally, (laughs) and rescues Katkin. And Moronim uses her gun to save him from the returning Kona and and in turn is saved by Zachary. Zachary and Katkin join Moronim and the pre-sends as their ship leaves the big island. On a distant planet, Zachary finishes telling the story to his grandchildren and joins Moronim. Uh, yes. So first and foremost, uh, he finds <laughs> Hugh Grant, Tom Hanks, that is Zachary. Once he finds his village kind of in rubble being burned to the ground, I guess Hugh Grant's character overate. He got the itis from eating too many people because he's just taking a nap. And then Tom Hanks takes his dagger out and doesn't slit his throat. He like cuts half of his head off. It's easily the most violent thing I've ever seen Tom Hanks do. Hashtag not my Tom Hanks. I mean, that is... God, uh, not that I expect most true fans of Tom Hanks would make it this far into the movie. Because by now we're in like two and a half hours by the time that this happens. Everything is wrapping up. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you imagine them just like the shock of seeing their beloved American all-star just 
you know, he's not hacking at the throat of uh, Hugh Grant's throat. He's just kind of like, like sawing, sawing mm-hmm. through it, and 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 the the sound. And the, Hugh Grant's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like it's fucked up. Yeah, we hated him throughout the movie, but nobody deserves this. <laughs> the audience, least of all. So yeah, it, it's just disturbing to see Tom Hanks do that. But of course, by now also. We've seen him do so many horrible things, and he's disappointing us on so many levels. Uh, I guess the biggest shock here is just to see a Tom Hanks that looks relatively like the Tom Hanks you know. Bearded. I mean, a little rough, you know. You, you could say it's like a, a castaway Tom Hanks kind of mm-hmm. uh, do something so horrible. But that's not where it all – I mean, Hugh Grant even – yeah, he's played the bad guy one way or another in all these stories. But here he just goes – all out. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's scary I, I, looking too. I would say hashtag not my Hugh Grant. I mean, this is not a charming romantic comedy where he could use his British accent and just make it all better. It's just, it's kind of off-putting. And then, so you have all the other returning players. You have Halle Berry playing the futuristic person. Who's there to send out the SOS cry. Yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, Susan Sarandon in probably her biggest part in the movie. Playing the witch doctor, yeah, I guess with uh, her eyes changing ever, ever so slightly. Yeah, well, Jim Sturgis, who plays, I guess, Tom Hanks's brother and gets killed really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith David shows up for like a minute just in a, on a screen, isn't he? Like the commander or something, uh, like yes. uh, Halle Berry's boss. And then you have Hugo Weaving, not getting much like Hugh Grant, old Georgie, old Georgie. He doesn't get any redemption at all. He plays also like I guess Tom Hanks's. Yeah. What is, is he like the devil? I'm is not he... entirely sure. It's uh, just so. I'm not sure if Hanks is like on acid the entire time. It's just so overbroad, and it's almost like the Wachowskis didn't trust Tom Hanks to convey his inner conflict just via his acting. So they had to give him a Hugo Weaving to be like on his shoulder, whispering to him all the time to be a coward and to do like bad things. Yeah, this was uh, easily the sequence I was least engaged in just because it it was kind of hard to follow in terms of what the narrative was supposed to be, but also just... um, Oh, well, yeah, because that's like the main thing about this is for some reason this far into the future, just the English language just went to shit. (laughs) And they just talk like a mix between like like a kindergartner and like our current president. (laughs) It's just... What happened to English? It's how do you get to that point where you just I don't know it's like they regressed in time and well of course it looks also like a very primitive tribe like mm-hmm. that Hanks is living uh, in but then Halle Berry shows up and she's also a human she lives on Earth but she has like a spaceship and yeah. like much much later she she even has guns because uh, there's a point where uh, I was wondering why she wouldn't use all of this fancy technology to make their lives easier. You know, like the first time that uh, she's taking a walk with Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks senses that Hugh Grant's tribe or, you know, his savages are coming. They just hide under the bridge. And I was thinking, you have a spaceship. Why haven't you just like blown these people? She has a she busts out a very powerful gun at the end. too. At the very end. Why didn't she bust it out earlier? I mean, uh, patience. She was following the teachings of so many four, five, one. She has she has a spaceship. But she decides to climb this mountain like the old-fashioned way <laughs> instead of flying up there. Uh, I don't think that there's a consistency in the depiction of technology in in the movie in general, but also like this specific section. Well, and to be fair, they only have the, the remaining remnants of high technology. I mean, I'm sorry, but you see her fly over the ocean a couple of times. 
They could have been out of gas. <laughs> uh, but I think even worse than all of this is just that this is the part where uh, the filmmakers decide to take just go on a full on attack against religion. Because basically the whole idea is that uh, Sumni from the previous story has become this sort of goddess that Hanks and his people pray to. And uh, and then the big turn for Tom Hanks is when they finally arrive at this place that he's taking Halle Berry to, you know, so she can broadcast her message. And uh, and he learns the truth. Sumni was just – she wasn't anybody special. She was just like this person that led like a really hard life. Mm-hmm. And uh, – and this is delivered by Halle Berry, who should fucking know better than to completely upend this man's system of beliefs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, earlier in the movie, she refuses to help uh, his niece, right? She's like, I can't cure her because I'm not allowed to interfere. She goes all like prime directive on him. I can't like interfere. And then and then she only helps when Hanks is like, okay, well, I'll take you where you want to go if you help her, mm-hmm. right? So then she can't interfere. But later on... She has absolutely no problem just completely blowing his mind by telling him, well, yeah, this this figure that you worship as a god was really just like... They came so far together, she figured she would just be honest with him. <laughs> she could feel that connection yeah. from, from past lives, which is also like... this is Now that we're like towards the end, I, I can really explain how it annoys me, the, the, the way that this movie doesn't have any sort of consistency in its rules for i guess reincarnation mm-hmm. uh because when tom hanks meets Halle Berry in the 70s right mm-hmm. she uh he says i don't know why but i feel like i know you which doesn't make any sense because chronologically he hasn't met her ever in any of the stories it's a horrible pickup line too. He, <laughs> it, it, but it's not even a pickup line because later in the plane before he gets blown up he's like uh Am I in love with Louisa Ray? It's like, how are you in love? So they try to pay it off as it's, this is something that's been happening, which I would buy from uh, from the Jim Sturgis character and mm-hmm. uh, and you know Sumni because you know they had a previous history. But here, Tom Hanks doesn't really like have a connection with Halle Berry until the very end, the very last story, which is in the far future. So what the hell is he feeling? That's it doesn't make sense. It, it clairvoyance, it, right? The, what makes it clear is like because right now we're going through these stories in chronological order, it makes it clearer. In the movie, because you keep jumping back and forth, you get confused because <laughs> you see Halle Berry and Tom Hanks you know, together in the future and then back in the 70s. You're like, oh, this makes sense. Mm. But it doesn't really, uh, which is the same thing when I was telling you that all the white people get, get happy endings. I mean, yes, uh, Sturgis and uh, Sumni, like, they die in the New Soul uh, story. Mm. But technically, because this movie is like, the hell with chronology, they have a happy ending at the very end of the movie because at the very end of the movie, you see them as husband and wife in the 1830s or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, fuck that. That's not how Brilliant. life works. Don't give me this like time is a circle bullshit. I mean, that if you're going to set up your movie where you even have like titles that tell you what time it is, then you need to stick to the chronology that we that we know, that we know and understand. Uh, I think it's just that the Wachowskis and uh, Mr. Twiker? Twikow? Tyquer. Tyquer. <laughs> they, they uh they were just like, screw it. We just wanna make it the way we want to make it, and then people can fill in the gaps. And I think that's kind of lazy storytelling. No, they made the story they wanted to make, you know, yeah, the time 
space continuum may not be exactly what you would prefer it to be. It but doesn't matter if it doesn't obey the laws of physics, and the, it doesn't matter. Visually and thematically, it all paid off, and they all ended up together the way they were meant to. Listen, we have Tom Hanks, we have Hugh Grant, we have Halle Berry. We can do whatever we want. Oh, you don't believe me? I'm going to make Tom Hanks ugly and hateable. And then at the end, he's bald with a giant scar on his face telling stories to his grandkids. About the true true. About the true true. And it's a happy ending. It's, uh, And then, yeah, okay. So at the very end, you know, he has to get a scar. Uh, he, he's being chased by all these people. And for some reason, Halle Berry takes, waits until the very last moment mm-hmm. <laughs> to save him. Because it turns out that she's been hiding behind, like, a giant bush or a giant rock or something. Right? And... Uh, Tom Hanks has been running with his niece, sends the niece away, and then all these people close on him, and they grab him, and the guy has a gigantic sword against his throat. And only then does Halle Berry pop up with a gun, a gun that she's had apparently the entire movie, but she decided to use it just now, mm-hmm. and and shoot the guy. And because she waited this long, now Tom Hanks has like this nasty scar and almost loses an eye. Uh, it's character building. <laughs> you know what the tagline for the movie was? Everything is connected. <laughs> I thought that was the tagline for the Alias TV show. Oh, God. That show. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then and then what? And then we close with old Tom Hanks. Telling a story. Telling a story, and the big reveal is that they're not even on Earth anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, And then the second big reveal is that he uh, he hooked up with Halle Berry with future Halle Berry, and uh, they they just had offspring. Mm-hmm. And they have a bunch of grandkids. Is now. the movie telling you that the only way that uh, successful interracial couple is gonna make it is if they leave planet Earth and just settle somewhere else? Because that's pretty. I backwards. think it's more of the character building scar is you know <laughs> it was what brings them together. Oh yeah, she she was not interested until she saw that he was rugged. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and he didn't see old georgie anymore because his face he did not see old georgie no uh what he did see though was the the comet that was the one concurrent throughout the film that waiting to to the end here to bring up uh the symbol of a comet is something that is very prevalent throughout the movie and in every incarnation of our stories uh one of the characters will have a birthmark or there will be a mark of some sort of the but comet. there's no rhyme or reason to as to why they have the comet because everything's connected julio right but connected how connected why like, what is it because okay so Halle Berry has it on this in the 70s mm-hmm. uh uh cavendish has it and when he was younger when he was younger right and well then, yeah it's like a birthmark so it's yeah, not just, it's yeah. just some so jim broadden doesn't really get it ever the guy playing young jim broadden has it correct uh, and then i guess does Jim Sturgis has it in the? Does he have it in the? I think his mustache, Jim Sturgis, he does. <laughs> right. Does that's what I mean? Like, does he have it as a? I I, I don't remember. I know Tom Hanks strips him uh, quite a few times when they're in the ship and he's trying to steal his gold. But it's true. Um, and then the composer, the gay composer, has it because you see it when he first mm-hmm. gets up. Um, I think he has it like on his butt cheek or something. But that's yeah. how it ends. The movie ends with the comet. The, oh, yeah, that's right. You see the comet mm-hmm. come by, and you're like, fuck this. What does it all mean? <laughs> it means everything's tied together. And Life you look, it's is like, linear. Oh, my God, it's three hours. I thought it was six two, it took so long. Two hours and 52 minutes. Thank you. Plus credits. <sighs> oh, because then at the very end, we get to see the Wachowskis just kind of brag about how they got 
all these actors to work so much for probably the same uh, the same amount of money. They're like, we got yeah, we paid Hanks for one performance, but we got like six performances from Hanks, and you just see like little snapshots of all the characters he's played and so on with the rest of the cast. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I I didn't I didn't go for it, man. It's just I really they're talented filmmakers. You know, they made Speed Racer. You. I kind of wish that they had just settled on the one story they wanted to tell and then just gone with that. Instead, it's almost like, well, we can't decide, so we're just going to make it all at once and interconnected. And then, you know what? The tagline will be everything is connected. So that way, if anybody complains about it, we'll just say, no, but man, everything is connected. Exactly. See, it worked on you. Yes. You giant mark. You can tie it all together that way. As long as you have that, it works. Well, I'm ready for real talk. Yes. Are there no true Scotsmen in the house? Those there English gallants are sampling all over my God-given rights. These people are mine. They've used me and my pals most direly. And we're in need of a wee bit of assistance. All right, Paul. I will not let you die. Now, you just look at him, you griever. You can go shank your bloody sporran. <laughs> The true, true about the Cloud Cloud Atlas Atlas. Uh, this <laughs> Cloud Atlas was released in North America on October 26, 2012. Uh, budget of $128.5 million approximately for a box office, a little over $130 million. So made its budget back. Uh, again, the prevailing theory, or not theory, excuse me, the prevailing narrative about it being made was that it was one of the most expensive independent films ever made what's independent about it though i don't know that's what i was confused about who released it who was the film studio that released it distributed by warner brothers (laughs) i don't know i think i mean i understand like the spirit of independent filmmaking in the sense that oh well this is not like the movie that you would usually see but from the moment you have like tom hanks and the wachowskis attached the, That's yeah. not a. I don't think so. I don't know. Not that I care. That I don't care if a movie is independent, like labels itself as independent or not. You know that doesn't affect my enjoyment of it. But I know a lot of people have issues with that whole like, oh, don't call yourself independent if you're really not. I mean, was it up for any independent uh, awards or whatever? Isn't there like a? I was surprised it wasn't. Uh... Nominated for best makeup or visual effects, rather. Dude, fuck that! That that makeup is pretty bad. The, it's not Jay Edgar level, but I don't really care for. Uh, I thought the, the makeup, like for the tribe, was cool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about like the <laughs> the form changing makeup that <laughs> right. they put on everybody. Yeah. Uh, it looks like it was pre-nominated for best visuals for Academy Awards, but did not end up getting nominated in the category. Pre-nominated, um, just pre- like. For your consideration. Yeah, whatever the... Pretty f- please. Here's a screener of this in six DVDs. Uh, okay, so <laughs> outside of that, before I let you get to your reviews, yes, there were the three directors. There were the Wachowskis, and then there was Tom Tykwer. 
Uh, and based on what I was reading here, the sequences in 1849, 2144, and 2321 were directed by the Wachowskis, whereas Twiger directed the 1936, 1973, and 2012 segments. Um, don't think Twiger probably got as much credibility, credit excuse me, for this as he would have liked or as I think he probably would have deserved. Yeah, you usually think of it as a Wachowski movie. Mm-hmm. You don't really think of it. Him as I mean, he directed half the movie according to that. Yeah, and that's so. Yeah, well, we will we acknowledge him even if we've mispronounced his last name about thirty over times. Over. Yeah, um, but yeah, he also doesn't get mentioned in any of the quotes here. Uh, but we'll we'll have a few more. Philip French from Observer UK says it has a certain grandeur. If ultimately it's an inspiringly ambitious folly. Uh, Simon Mirodo from Quickflix says a compelling and cynical often thrilling package, the likes of which we've never seen before and will perhaps never see replicated. I will watch Cloud Atlas more than once. Here's a lot of free time. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Edwards from Daily Mirror UK. A bafflingly bonkers grand folly. It's weirdness on a grand but mostly unfathomable scale. That's two uses of folly in like three reviews. That's too much was the hot word back in the fall of uh, 2012. Uh, Nigel Andrews from Financial Times. Three hours to solve the problems of providence, history, human existence, and the conundrums of space-time. It's pretty good going. Adam Lee Davis from Little White Lies says, The perfect film for all those people whose one undying wish in life is to swim with dolphins. Fuck you. What the hell is that? Adam Lee Davis, not a fan. I I don't care for your snark. Uh, Robbie Collin from Daily Telegraph UK says, Tyquer and the Wachowskis, never mind. He got mentioned. There we go. This one. And it's a, it's a fresh tomato. Tyquer and the Wachowskis have labored long and hard to turn Mitchell's very literary material into something cinematic. Siobhan Sinnott from Scotsman says, this must have sounded great at some point, but it's really terrible to watch. It's a Tom Hanks fan. Uh, Jason Gorber from Screen Anarchy might as well embrace the timeline where, in fact, films of disambition are still being made, still being presented to that audience quite desperate for re- for a respite from a slew of remakes, sequels, reimaginings, and the like. That was just unnecessarily convolutedly worded. <laughs> Kenneth R. Moorfield from Christianity Today. It is hard to think of another film in recent memory in which the accumulation of so much talent has rendered so little. And finally, Widget Walls from NeatCoffee.com. If there is a fault to be found with this film, is that it wants to be about everything. But if it was any less than that, it wouldn't be this film. So, Julio, you've read the book by David Mitchell. Yes. Um, so what what do you prefer? What What is your favorite, the incarnation of the story? Well, I mean, I love books, but I love movies even more. And therefore, I love the movie more than the book. The book mm-hmm. is great, but this movie is better. Um, but also, I saw the movie first. And maybe, you know, if I'd read the book first, I would have had more issue mm-hmm. with, you know, how whatever the movie changed. They're really not that different. I mean, the way the story is presented, I was telling you while we were watching it, the book is different. It 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 doesn't intercut between the stories anywhere near as much it's just basically each story has two parts mm-hmm. and it presents you the first part of every story uh in order in chronological order mm-hmm. and then once you get to zachary's story you just read the whole story together and then it starts going backwards with the second halves of of uh all the other stories so it ends with uh the story of this labor or you know 
the lawyer that becomes a pro or an anti-slavery mm-hmm. uh, guy, and uh, and there are connections. And in the mo- in the book, it's very clear. I think from what I remember, something that's not in the movie. In the movie, the comet, the the birthmark that resembles a comet, yeah, it just basically happens to be on the body of whoever is the main character of each story. Okay, right in the book, the birthmark kind of helps you track reincarnation. Mm-hmm. So. If you if you and, and the reincarnation is a little more obvious, so you know here it would be like all the Tom Hanks characters are really one character because he's it's the same spirit going down the line and mm-hmm. he has an arc, which I think when you look at the movie that way it's pretty fascinating to see that there are you know let's say there's some souls like Hugh Grant's and Hugo uh, Weaving that they never find redemption; they're always like yeah. horrible people. Whereas like you have people like Tom Hanks that go up and down; he starts pretty terrible and then slowly changes, you know. Uh, and then you have uh, people like Jim Sturgis, who's always good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that's the all the other big change I remember from the book is that the the new Soul story ends very differently. I mean, it's it's kind of like the same plot, but the thing at the very end is that uh, it turns out that Jim Sturgis' character was manipulating Sumni the entire time. Oh wow! Yeah, it was all so that they would like. Uh, I don't remember what the logic is, but the idea is that. She she knows and she's figured it out at the end and she's like well it doesn't matter because I still love them or something I don't know it's it's much sadder mm-hmm. the, the ending here they're like oh no their relationship was true and uh, uh, and that makes it at least you know her life was worth it even though she loses it because yeah. you know she experienced true love and she changes the mind of the guy that's interrogating her but in the book it's a little darker the uh, this is my first time watching as we mentioned the first portion and I I really enjoyed it now the old makeup and the uh race changing makeup is bad and poor um comes off more comical than not a lot of the time uh but that being said i found the film very interesting i do think like i said i was being genuine in that obviously the the, the vision of the film that they had was the same set of actors in every portion um despite some of the uncomfortable nature of you know actors playing different races i think at the end of the day for this movie it worked for me because i understood that was like the point of the movie yeah the only reason it makes me uncomfortable and doesn't really make me uncomfortable it's just like i i wish it wasn't there i wish it was done better mm-hmm. i don't have a problem with jim Sturge just playing an asian character i just wish it didn't look so weird yeah you know it's like and part of it is because you know it's Jim Sturgis, so <laughs> yeah. the, so you, like the worst when Asian Hugo Weaving comes in. It's, yeah, that's like that. Just looks. I don't find it offensive. I really don't know how an Asian person would feel, but but I do agree that the point is not like it has to do. The whole movie has to do with uh, uh, it plays. It, so many moments play really well because you know it's the same actors playing those characters, mm-hmm. uh, and you need the movie needs to draw those parallels. It's not just about the way that the stories are connected in a very. Uh, uh, to me, uh, it could have gotten way. a lot more muddy and more confusing had every portion had different actors. Right. Yeah. Then you're just relying on on, on basically very like thematic uh, mm-hmm. aspects of it. But I like that 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 you know you see. Uh, God, the transitions of this movie are so amazing, uh, and I couldn't like really quote them specifically but you'll have things where you know they'll have those voiceovers by you know there's several characters that have voiceovers and they happen to apply to every single thing that's happening across all six stories you know they build up and and then it's not just that but also they happen to apply uh 
to each actor, not just the character, but the actor, you know? So there'll be stuff that happens in Tom Hanks' life uh, in one uh, in one story that also is tied together to what happens to him in another story. You know, mm-hmm. just the fact, the mere fact that Jim Sturgis and the actress that plays Sumni, you know, end up married at the end of one story and then and are they're just in love but have a tragic ending in another story. Yeah. You know, that you get some sort of... Uh, uh, it's not a downer because the movie ends with them together Sense in a different timeline. Yeah, you you know you can't do that if you have different actors playing them. No, and, and that's probably like the best or, or rather the worst makeup. I think it's when they try to make Sumney look like a white woman at yeah. the very end. It looks fake, and you know you just don't buy it. And yet, it's still emotionally it works so well because you just saw her speak about. Uh, her relationship with Jim Sturgis, you know, in this new soul story, mm-hmm. and you see him dying from gunshots, and mm-hmm. then you kind of like fade to them being together back in the 1830s. It's like the only way that works is if you have the same actor and the same actress working there, you know. So it's, I, I, I wish it worked better, but it still works even with the really iffy makeup. Yeah, and that again, that is the Wachowskis and uh, Tyke where that was their response as well was basically their defense against uh activist groups and advocacy groups and things like that that came out against it was yeah no it, it needed to be for continuity's sake we needed to have the same actors to deliver the message we wanted to and yeah it i mean it doesn't genuinely make me uncomfortable the extent of you know Mickey Rooney and uh fucking Breakfast at Tiffany's does right well um, there's there's a reason behind it i think that's what makes it different that's true it's not just mm-hmm. for the sake of you know doing it yeah i uh it's so, not fucking Emma Stone and Aloha. <laughs> well, there was a reason there, and that's that they wanted a uh, up and coming star. They wanted. There's a reason they wanted Emma Stone. <laughs> um, how how do you rank the stories? Uh, the 2012 one's my favorite, uh, but again, as far tonally, it doesn't match up really with anything else in the movie. But I think it it's its best own little side story. I uh, think it's really it's got a lot of fun and comedy, but also like emotion and I don't know the hopeless romantic in me just loves that he ends up with gorgeous Susan Sarandon in the end. Uh, the soul story is pretty cool, um, which is the I thought the as far as acting goes and delivery and everything, the one in the 1930s with the composer that uh, one's quite excellent. That that might be my favorite, just because. Is the one that hits me the hardest. I mm-hmm. think it's so sad, and you even know that he's gonna kill himself. The movie opens with, with him. With yeah. him, you know that he's killing himself. It's not even that it opens with him like looking at the gun. I mean, you, you know that he's gonna kill himself. The note's like, yeah, yesterday I killed myself. Yeah, like, and uh, but the it's still. I just think it's so sad how it all plays. Like his voiceover, uh, and uh, oh god, it's so heart wrenching when he finds him in the bathtub and he's like trying to like almost wake him up type yeah. thing. He he grabs his head and he like he has the brain matter I guess yeah, uh, but even then the fact that he he sees him he sees uh, James Darcy and hides from him yeah you know it's like this guy had made up his mind that he was done with life mm-hmm. he had done what he wanted to do and and that was it uh, it's just really sad and the things that he says uh, oh man I wish I could remember the line but it's something like. I don't know. He's just talking about love, and and it, it was just—it's a really good voiceover and the way it plays. And because if I remember correctly, it doesn't just play over his the end of his story. Whatever else they put over there from the other stories mm-hmm. also ties into that kind of stuff. So it's really good. Uh, and right before that sequence, I think it hits that the one where 
it turns out that it's a dream that James Darcy's having on the on the train while he's yeah. going to meet him. Yeah, that sequence is great. With their like breaking the gla- the plates in slow motion, mm-hmm. but it's also intercut with uh, Jim Sturgis and Sumni uh, having sex yeah. in New Soul, and, and you know it's all about connection between two people, and it just works so well. So that's, I think that's the one that hits me the hardest. So it'd probably be my favorite. And I remember thinking that the 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 one at the old people's home was the one I liked the least because I think because it's so different from everything else it's just so broad and so yeah. like comical and and also Soylent was... Green is made of people <laughs> uh, but then I don't know this time I was watching it I actually really enjoyed it I I, I liked it a lot maybe it, maybe it was because you were laughing so much at it I was like yeah it is funny it's it's, a... it's very light but also like there's some reality to it it's definitely the one aimed for the most comedic reaction out of all of them. Right, but yeah. I, I think the performances, it really works. Um, yeah, the the way, way future was the one I was least engaged in. It, it's hard because... The uh, old Georgie uh, thing just completely takes me out of it. Um, I Cannibal Hugh Grant, though, is awesome. Yeah, Cannibal Hugh Grant is awesome. And actually, I really like the arc that Tom Hanks has where, you know, that's very clear that he's a coward at the beginning of that story and then he... You know, he finds his balls by the end of it. And uh, I think plot-wise, I like it a lot. Just th- that he finds his his entire religion, you know, system just toppled. Mm-hmm. And I like that at the end, you know, they're safe. And Halle Berry says, thanks, Somni. And he's like, no, thank you. Yeah. And it was like, yep, he just abandoned religion completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I'm not offended by that. And I don't think that it's necessarily saying that religion is bad. It's just that, you know, in that specific no, story. No, it's, it's the, yeah, I was, you <laughs> took the words out of my mouth for that story. That's, yeah. Um, what we skipped over on the 2012 part of what I wanted to go back to was, uh, again, rock and roll of Tom Hanks, the, <laughs> it, the dirty fucking mob trash. Uh, and having not read the book or seen the movie, it did shock me when he threw that guy off the top of the oh, building. Oh, yeah, that is, that is so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're all really good. Uh, I really like. I mean, I always like Jim Sturgis. Uh, it's good that this he's hit or miss, man. Uh, well, yeah, movies wise, but I like him as a performer. Mm-hmm. So I wish that he was in more no, no, movies. No, no. Well, I think his performances are hit or miss. Really? When when haven't you liked them? Uh, I didn't care for Twenty One or uh, Across the Universe. Oh fuck you! Across the Universe is great. Okay. Um, <laughs> he was great in uh, Geostorm, where he didn't have where he was out of breath the entire movie. Uh, he he's really good here, uh, namely as the when he's dying on the boat. He, he, I thought that was good. I wanted to pay mind to that section too. The guy, uh, I let me see if I can pull up his the actor's name real quick, just to make sure. Yeah, I feel bad because I keep I keep saying Sumni, and that's just because I don't remember the the name of the actress. Because just her, like the guy that plays, uh, um, you know, the gay composer and the guy that plays the slave. Like those are not big names. So yeah, that, that's what I was gonna say. Uh, David Geisy, I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. That's Atua, the slave. Mm-hmm. I thought he was excellent in that. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. That's, that's another one. That might be like the second, like as far as like hitting me hardest, because I remember watching this in the movie theater. The first time I watched it was in theaters. I was one of those lucky few that <laughs> saw it in theaters. Well, apparently, plenty of people saw it. 130 million. But that's like box office altogether, or is mm-hmm. that just after video release and all that stuff? Because I know at the theater, uh, box that, office. Okay, because we never got it at the theater. I can imagine this probably did better globally than domestically. Probably, yeah. I had to. I had to go see it at the Metropolitan, uh, and uh, the scene where uh, 
where he sets the sails and it's just so good and watching it in the big screen it was I was fascinated by everything that happened. Like, I mean, I was already into the movie, but I remember that moment where I was just transported to everything that was happening. Yeah. Uh, because it's just so badass what happens, you know, that he not only he doesn't get shot, but he manages to whatever you call rigging the sail or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to have some sailor that listens to the podcast is going to like send us an this angry email. This is bullshit. <laughs> you know what? Don't talk about things that you don't know anything <laughs> about. Uh, but yeah, that, uh, and because also I don't remember what that's intercut with, but that's intercut with something else, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it might be like with the one of the firefights in the future in, in New Soul that you know is like Jim yeah. Surges and Sumni are getting shot at, and then the the slave is about to get shot while he's like climbing the mast. Uh, yeah, the intercuttings you're right about that are fantastic. Um, Hugh Grant wildly understated like his roles are not him but like there's only as the in the 70s storyline is when he has his most Hugh Grant-esque moments right that's when the, being he turns charming. his on yeah. and, but he's like but yeah he's really good in, in the the parts that he has elsewhere um I mean it should not come as a surprise to anybody that Tom Hanks is fucking fantastic yes Hanks is great uh he this was departure wise though he hasn't really done too much like this in the past decade. well he gets to play so many different roles here you know that there's a seeing him as like an asshole or like evil is always really weird yeah and uh, i there's a good i was just telling somebody this story uh a couple of days ago, uh, you remember when Lady Killers came out, mm-hmm. and so Tom Hanks and Lady Killers is not your usual Hanks. No, uh, and Lady is Killers, Coen Brothers, yeah, it's Coen Brothers. And Lady Killers is not uh, uh, your usual Tom Hanks movie. Also, it's so, a very dark comedy, right? But I remember people just walking out of it, like all these like senior citizens just walking out, and it was they were just disappointed by Tom Hanks being in that movie. They were like they were cursing. And he was, he was. How could you a, do this to us, a Tom? Bad person. Seriously, I mean, they showed up to watch Lady Killers, just on the strength of Tom Hanks being in the movie. Mm-hmm. They n- knew nothing about what it was about, and then it was just basically the performance I was putting on on hashtag CC about my feelings <laughs> regarding Tom Hanks playing a bad guy and doing ugly things. That like that was. In real life, that was how those people felt about Lady Killers, and I wonder how they felt about Cloud Atlas. Maybe by then they were already given up on him. Yeah, that that's a sidebar, but we've talked about this before, maybe on air, but I know definitely off air. If you're one of those people going to a movie like that, you don't know what you're seeing, then yeah. You, it's one thing to go to a movie, Good Time, for example, because I'm looking at it right over there, and it ends up being something different than you expected. But if you go into a movie blind and you're just like, oh, I'll just think it's going to be this and then I'll be mad that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, I have very little sympathy for your cause. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I don't know how many people actually follow actors blindly or directors blindly. I mean, I'll go watch, you know, whatever. If it's a director I like, I'll go watch their new movie knowing nothing. Yep. But then I'm not going to be mad if I don't like it or if it surprises me in a bad way because it'd be like I, the I guess that's more of my gripe. Yeah. If you react negatively and act like mad because you didn't know what you were getting into, mm-hmm. then yeah, same, yeah, Christopher Nolan, I'll watch anything he makes. They're, most likely he'll make something I don't care for. But. Right. You didn't know if Dunkirk was like a superhero or if it was <laughs> uh, the Dunkirk place of battle. was excellent. You're like, what is the prestige? <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, I mean, you lent this to me two years ago. And, uh, it's collected dust since then with the other <laughs> movies that people have lent me because... 
Uh, I am one of those people with really bad habits of I should watch things I haven't seen before, but instead I'll just put the office on and watch it for the millionth time. But also, it's three hours. It is So an I investment. think that's the only thing that could like count against it, except that I love it. I, I don't mind. I mean, some of my it favorite movies are really long. It didn't feel its length. Yeah. Yeah. It, it helps a lot. I really enjoyed it. That but... it just cuts, you know, you're always moving. You're always... And if I can steal a line from uh, former contrarian, Contrarian's guest, Reed... Uh, of which he said about Wolf of Wall Street. So for that, he's wrong. But I'm stealing his line for this, in that this movie wouldn't have worked if it wasn't as long as it was. Well, yeah, you need to... I mean, it's ambitious, and you need three hours to to paint on that canvas. Yeah, but... Yeah, no, Wolf of Wall Street, fuck that movie. (laughs) (laughs) It could have been easily a half hour shorter. Wolf of Wall Street made its point in its first half hour, and Mm -hmm. then it just kept repeating it. It was like, yeah, if a Jackass movie was like two and a half hours long. <laughs> we get it. They like getting hurt. They can handle it. Uh, I get it. Jonah Hill is obnoxious. DiCaprio can get away with murder. That's it. Oh, wait. Kyle Chandler's here. Hold on. <laughs> Let me pay attention. Oh, he's gone. Never mind. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this was uh, for your recommendation. I mean, this was, yeah, I- I'm surprised at how much I liked it. Because I remember seeing screen caps of, like, the old people makeup and Asian makeup and being like, oof. Uh, and, yeah, the only time in the movie that it really took me out of the scene was when Hugo Weaving came in with, like, <laughs> the scotch tape pulling his eyes back. I was like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, that, I I wish it, they found a way of making it work somehow. I understand why. And honestly, I mean, like, this is my third time watching it, so it really bothers me a lot less now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I even I barely blinked when Jim Surges showed up as Asian Jim Surges, and when I watched it in the movie theater, I I was like, "What the hell is going on?" And now it's just like, uh, yeah, it, it it just happens." Uh, I think okay, so I didn't rank them. Uh, uh, so, I, gay composer goes first, second maybe like uh, the slave and Jim Surges. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know at the very bottom I'm gonna put the seventies in Halle Berry, Halle Berry story because yeah, that was a bit too crime drama right it was just like out of all the different genres i think that that's the one that i find the least interesting uh and a dog got killed so that i wasn't a fan of that yeah and actually you want to talk about bad makeup uh the because i think it's are you, uh, know, are you talking about duna bay and the hispanic woman makeup yes yeah. i mean come on dude that is just that's bad and yeah the dog i think the dog gets killed to distract from the bad makeup um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and also, I just, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of, like, the precautious kid trope, and, you know, this one has one, I don't know. It's still good, I like, I really like her scene with Tom Hanks, I, I think that that's definitely the heart cool. of that story. I'm cool. No, and then what he says later, that's another one of those, like, really awesome montages where he has a voiceover while mm-hmm. he's, you know, his plane's taking off, and it intercuts with, like, a lot of relationships and all the other stories because he's talking about how he feels about Halle Berry. Yeah. You know, that moment, I think that one works really well too. But I still put that one at the end and then maybe uh, the true true would be at the middle and then second to last, the old people. It's still good. Soccer hooligan Jim Sturgis, uh, man. For like, you know, 10 seconds. Oh, it's worth it though. That one shot of him with his (laughs) scarf on and all that shit. Yeah. Uh, no, it's good stuff though. I could definitely see myself revisiting this. I will be returning your Blu-ray here today. You, uh, you get a lot more of it, uh, obviously on rewatches I because see that. the plot's out of the way, so you just kind of like you're open to seeing how how many ways these stories are getting connected. Yeah. So that's 
that's pretty cool. I wish I could tell you like ways that I discovered this time around, but I, I was just kind of like taking notes and I was like, I wish I could write this down, but it's just kind of distract me more. And, but it was stuff that I hadn't seen before. So mm. it was, it was pretty exciting. So that was episode 50. My God, we have come quite a ways. It seems yeah, like just yeah. yesterday we were talking about, uh, nightmare before Christmas. Yeah, I was going to say, and then Rocky, when we got our first bit of bad feedback. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, moving forward, the plan for episode 51 is to have uh, Chaz Fisher return to the podcast, and we will be um, most likely violently arguing about American Hustle. <laughs> well, we'll be we'll be all together in dissing American Hustle in Contrarian's Corner. Yes. So you'll get you know a, a solid. We'll be on the same page for a little while. A solid first half where where Chaz will probably be cringing and forcing himself <laughs> to say bad things about American Hustle. And then he'll come unleashed. In and then the second half, I'll talk. just poke the bear continuously. <laughs> uh, but winding down here, as always, we move into our plugs section. So first and foremost, for their shout out to us on their Twitter, we want to plug the Fire Show by Moby uh, on Twitter. That's at Fire Show Podcast. Um, now I'm not overly familiar with their product, um, but I did see they had plugged us, and you know, throw some. Good vibes our way, so I definitely want to return that. We're all about plugging back. Yeah, exactly. I saw I got on my Twitter and saw the mention. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to complain about people, you know, plugging our shit. So um, that, as far as other plugs go, again, we're recording this December 2nd, 2017. Uh, tonight, my favorite boxer of all time, Miguel Cotto, fights for the final time, allegedly. I've watched pro wrestling my entire life, so I refuse to believe a retirement is ever real. It's like when Steve Soderbergh or Kevin Smith, yeah. they say they're done with movies, and then five years later, they're back. But, yeah, Miguel Cotto, amazing fighter, good family man, smoking hot wife, all the love and praise to him. All sorts of uh, good stuff. Yeah, thank you. And then my final plug is just, again, good time. I rewatched it after eating Thanksgiving night, and that movie's so fucking good. Uh, it's only 90 minutes. It's not much of an investment. I recommend checking it out. Uh, and then also, I did watch Rogue One for the first time. What do you think of uh, CGI Princess Leia? And CGI I was fine Moff with Tarkin? it. Uh, what was the other one? Moff Tarkin, I think. That's the name of uh, Peter Cushing. Yeah, that was a bit creepy because there was a lot of it. There was a lot. Yeah, the Princess Leia thing, I think, works better because it's just the very end. Yeah. And it's such a like big moment that ties everything together. The Peter Cushing thing is like... Yeah, he sticks around for a while, yeah. and it wasn't necessary. I had some yeah. conflicting views on the movie. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Uh, those reviews that said it was the best Star Wars movie ever are ridiculous. Calm down. Yeah. Um, about 10 minutes into it watching it, and this is something I hadn't even thought of when it came out or like around the time. Once I figured out the time frame of it, I was like, oh, fuck, they're all going to die. Because <laughs> like, they're not in any of it, the, and they all die. I kept waiting for the movie to find a way to just save at least a few of them. Like they know? did with Jar Jar? <laughs> yes. Where they're just like, well, you know, yeah, you haven't heard from them, but that doesn't mean they're dead. But no, they went all in. and You I was, see them all die. Yep. And the, the bad guy in that, the, the mob boss from Dark Knight Rises, gets killed by his own weapon in the end. <laughs> Uh, I was surprised at how fast they took uh, Forrest Whitaker out of the equation. Yeah, yeah. I I, I like the movie. I, I, I liked it a lot. I liked the things he was doing. But I don't think – there are people, my friend Drew, 
uh, for one, they, you know, they like it a lot better than Force Awakens. And I was like, no, no. I think Force Awakens, uh, it there may be is... less adventurous, but it's better done. It's, it's more solid. Like I have issues with like like the take, forced comedy. <laughs> not even like the forced comedy a little bit, but also just. There's something about the plot, about the story that doesn't quite work. It feels like it takes some jumps. Like the Forrest Whitaker character, mm-hmm. you know, it's like his story feels like truncated. And, you know, you're yeah. right. Like it, like he's gone too soon. And then uh, the main characters, you know, the the girl, the daughter of mm-hmm. Hannibal, uh, she – the way that she has her about face, you know, that goes from like not trusting the Alliance to suddenly saying, oh, we're going to go like – we're yeah. Rogue One and we're going to go storm this place. It just – I don't know. It feels like there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of chopping going on. Well, it's cool it, seeing it, Darth Vader though. Oh, that's by hands out the best part of the movie is that I finally saw Darth Vader fight like the badass everybody says yeah. he is. You know, all the other times for one reason or another, the the fights haven't been as impressive as something like the 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 lightsaber fight in uh, Episode One, mm-hmm. the one on Tatooine with Qui Gon and Darth Maul, or the three way, the three way. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Just, it's always the three ways always better. <laughs> uh, as long as it's you know, everybody knows the rule and, and everyone agrees to it. Obviously, yeah. yeah. You don't want to like you don't want a surprise three way. That's never. You don't want to force someone into a lightsaber fight. You don't know what's going to happen. He'll poke your eye out. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Um, I wasn't like bummed that it took me that long to watch it. But right. yeah, when it was over, it's like man, that was that was a lot of fun, and I do like that idea of plugging in gaps with offshoot movies. Yeah, yeah, and it it had like a bunch of cool characters. I really like the droid. I really like like the the blind sort of lightsaber ninja guy. Yeah, well, yeah, and I I did like that that whole thing if he didn't have the force, but you know, uh-huh. if yeah, I believe I deserve it, the universal servant type thing. So, uh, yeah, that was enjoyable. So if you haven't seen Rogue One, which I doubt you have not watch that and then watch good time um yeah i definitely need to watch good time just so i can like if i hate it we can have like a heated debate <laughs> that will be the end of the contrarians podcast are we the recording again before christmas we hopefully well yeah no definitely with uh uh american hustle because that has to be okay so i don't have to plug first. family stone here well, but they will come out after Christmas. I'll plug it on our Christmas bonus episode. Okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Okay. That's good. What plugs do you have for us, Julio? Uh, I, not that it needs much plugging because it's been getting a lot of buzz, but uh, have you heard of Lady Bird? Yes. The Greta Gerwig directed movie. It's really good. I saw it during AFF, um, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and it was it was really good. I'm glad that it's it's actually doing really well that it's getting, you know, all the claim. Because sometimes, you know, a movie can do really well on festival and that doesn't mean that... It doesn't translate. Right. It's like, okay, now the average moviegoer, are they really going to care? But uh, there were a couple people at the movie theater uh, where I worked that were really excited to watch and these are, like, just teenagers. And, uh, you know, I watched that movie as a, like, man in his late 30s mm-hmm. and I have an experience where it's, like, these... Kids are like 17, 18, they watch it and they have a completely different experience. So I didn't know if they were going to like really connect to it. And then, of course, they did. You know, they came out of it and they loved it. And yeah. it's, it's a movie about people like them in a way, you know. So uh, happy happy to see it's doing well. Uh, great performances uh, from uh, Sorcy Ronan, Laurie Mel- Metcalf, and uh, uh, Tracy Letts. I mean, it it's just really good. It's worth watching. Nice. If you can make your way to the Arbor, I guess it's probably the closest 
place around here that's playing it. Uh, it's definitely worth watching. Excellent. You know, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and, and do like a controversial plug. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, it's only controversial if you care about the Netflix Marvel uh, series, uh, which I can hear our friend Eddie Strait rolling his eyes already. Uh, which he does not care about. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, I don't know how aware you are of like, all the stuff that they've released, but you know, they started with Daredevil and then they started releasing other stuff, kind of like doing what the movies did where they build up a bunch of different characters leading up to uh, a TV show that puts all those characters together. Mm -hmm. So they did Daredevil, then they did Jessica Jones, then they did Luke Cage, they then did Iron Fist and they, they all came together in the defenders and everybody, most people love Daredevil. Jessica Jones. Yeah, I love Daredevil. Jessica Jones, I didn't care for, but a lot of people liked. Luke Cage, it was kind of like mixed, I think. And then everybody hated Iron Fist. And uh, obviously, because I didn't really care much for Luke Cage or Jessica Jones, it's taken me forever to get to Iron Fist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I finally did. And you know what? I'm having a good time. I haven't finished it. It's 13 episodes. I'm seven episodes in. So I'm like more than half the way through. And I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's great. I don't think anything has come close to being as cool as that first season of Daredevil. But yeah. I I don't really understand how you can sit through Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and then draw the line at Iron Fist. <laughs> you know, The only thing I can think of is, well, one, maybe it's just that Jessica Jones and Luke Cage just burned you out. And now you have no patience for anything that's about as good, if not better than that. You know, now you want excellence. Uh, or this is also very likely Iron Fist happens to be about a rich white guy, <laughs> you know? So it's not like a X-Men origins Wolverine drop off in quality. Not in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually, you know, the story works about as well as you would expect it. The, the relationships are, are interesting. The, the acting is good. You know, the fight scenes are not great, but neither, I mean, they're not great in, any of the other shows other than Daredevil. So kind of puzzled me. But, you know, Luke Cage is about like, you know, it's set in, uh, fuck, is it Brooklyn? I don't know. But it's like, you know, it's kind of like a black exploitation TV show kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it has like the gangsters. It's like black culture or whatever. Jessica Jones, you know, it's like a female lead, a hard drinking private detective or whatever, you know. And uh, but then you get to Iron Fist and it's just like this millionaire <laughs> that you know learned kung fu and is fighting ninjas so it i could see how that could maybe lead to some sort of backlash yeah or maybe the back six episodes are terrible i don't know just haven't fallen off the cliff yet exactly but i've been waiting for it to fall off the cliff from the very beginning kind of like me when we watch bewitched (laughs) yeah exactly i'm like that i was like is it is it is it happening is this it is this it and it still hasn't and of course i've been posting on twitter about it and you know i just get eye rolls and people saying oh just wait or yeah you're off um Mm. so i don't know we'll see we'll update when i finish iron fist sounds like a plan and and move into the defenders we'll reassess next time around uh anything in addition to that uh no we just have to plug the festive years as always uh who you know i i need to talk to chris uh as like we mentioned in the past episode i missed the album release party Mm -hmm. and then i went to his band camp and the album is not there. Oh. And I know he has like music videos on his Facebook and then their uh their website just takes you to a page that asks you to RSVP for the for the album release party, which already happened. 
So I just want to know, like, how do I get the music? <laughs> I just want the tunes, I man. I just want the tunes. I'll pay for them. I don't want them for free, but I don't know. So I need to I need to shoot him an email or, yeah. or text him or something. Uh, but yeah, uh, the festive year is still opening and closing our shows, which we appreciate. Yes, uh, that's from their past album, uh, which is called "Don't Let Me Use You." We open with "Last Stand." We close with "Summer of 1999." Any questions, comments, concerns? Uh, if you were offended by the use of Asian face in this, be sure to reach out to us at wearethecontrarians at gmail dot com. Correct? That is a Gmail address. Wearethecontrarians at gmail dot com. You can also, you know, I. Uh, we just switched to a different uh, host for our uh, for our files, mm-hmm. and it gives me the different stats. And I've been texting you. I was like, "Did you know that we had listeners in like this place or this place?" And so we had two listeners in Switzerland, mm-hmm. and I figure out which one of them is because it's a friend of mine that I've forgotten lives in Switzerland now. <laughs> and uh, I I texted her and I was like, "Is this you? Are you one of our uh, Switzerland listeners?" And she's like, "Yeah, that's me." And, uh, and well, thank like, oh. you. I was like, "Oh, that's great!" I was like, "I didn't know that you listened." And and then she said the sweetest thing, which was, "Yeah, you guys are funny." And I was like, "That is, why didn't you say that?" <laughs> okay, I, which I guess leads to my point of like, you know, I because then I said, "Can you like review us on iTunes and say these guys are funny because that's really sweet." Uh, and also, I just get a kick out of like funny people saying that we're funny. Yeah, she's, she's really funny, and I, it was really flattering. It's uh, I'm very conceited to begin with, so when people feed my ego, then it's it's really cool. Uh, that's that's cool to hear though, and also the reach, like the internet's fucking ridiculous. I know, I know. There's like uh, I was seeing like downloads from like Argentina. It's like I don't know who we knew. I mean, obviously I don't know anybody in Argentina. Do, do they but, have movies in Argentina? <laughs> Dude, they have movies in Peru, so definitely in Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the digging at Peru continues. Oh, well, yeah, that's they know I do it with love, and also I'm, I'm entitled because I spent 22 years there. So I feel I, you. Yeah. Um, other than that, do we have anything else? I think that's it. And we will uh, have a Christmas bonus episode, so keep your ears and eyes open for that. Uh, but yeah, outside of that, um, Julio and I are going to go get our makeup done and play Asian Julio and Alex this evening. So, uh, if you catch us on the streets, come say hi. Everything is connected. <laughs> There's no better way to end on that. So, uh, we'll just say that's going to do it for us here on the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong. And we will catch you next time. The summer of 1999.